This morning, I once more, you know, it's always a little difficult uh, for me. Uh, I uh, write prolifically, and uh, this is the message this morning, plus all this over here. And I have sometimes thought that, uh, like last Sunday, I guess a dozen people come up to me and said, couldn't you some Sunday just go on and just go on teaching us? I said, I would if there were not electric ovens that are already timed to go on at a certain time, and also the limitations that God has placed upon myself. I would love very much to go on for a couple of hours just talking about the things that are tremendous in these days we're living in. For certainly the Lord's coming is nigh. And if ever the words, they that hunger and thirst after righteousness uh, shall be filled, apply to any age, they apply to ours. We truly hunger after this. And uh, I am thirsting, and I hope you are hungering for a pure country, that greater kingdom, for a pure language. That's what the scripture says, there'll be a pure language there. For a pure mind, for a pure imagination, for a pure body, for a pure heaven, for a pure and blessed earth in which Christ shall be King of kings and Lord of lords for the thousand-year reign upon the face of this earth, wherein there is neither death nor sorrow nor tears nor crying, but the former things are passed away, and all things have become new. An age is coming, beloved, in which tremendous things are going to happen in this world. and tells us that a man of a hundred years shall be as a child, Uh, I believe undoubtedly there'll be some return to the pristine age when men live like Adam to 930 years, and they were real years. And uh, Methuselah lived to 969 years, and they were real years. The Hebrew calendar is a 30-day month. uh, They don't have 31 days, and they don't have 28 days like we do, but they do have a 30-day month. And the calendar hasn't changed. Sometimes people try to tell you that Methuselah couldn't have lived to 969. And Adam couldn't have lived to 930 years. Don't you kid yourself. In God's pristine creation, this happened. And there's going to be a blessed and wonderful return, if I could say. A transformation, a restoration to this earth of its pristine beginnings. And I always remember my son Donald, who liked the fruit, who always has liked fruit so much. And when he used to hear the portion of Scripture where I'd read, where it would say, and the fruit trees will bear 12 times a year, he used to get so excited about that, to think that the fruit trees would bear 12 times every year. And, uh, but the day is coming. It's coming for all of us. And... Uh, There are, of course, with all of this, the great warnings of God, if I can say this. Uh, The great warnings of God of a 
coming cataclysmic judgment which is going to fall upon this world. They're given us by God in his word and uh, have a clear-cut divine purpose. And that purpose is to strike fear. Now, I have to say this very carefully. To strike fear in the hearts of the insensitive to God. There are very insensitive hearts in this world who are insensitive to the things of God completely and to strike fear in their hearts. For our God, it says, is a consuming fire. The fear of the Lord is the, what? Beginning of wisdom. And so all the warnings of God are put in here for a very clear divine purpose. If God cannot get you to you with his message of love in Christ, he then will have to deal with the insensitive heart by warning them of an impending judgment that is coming. Now, when you find Christ as your Savior and when you come to him, what does the scripture then say in the epistles of John? Perfect love casts out what? Fear, you see. That's so precious, you see. Perfect love. That perfect love that God has for us been received into our hearts, that faith in Christ, it's cast out all fear. We have no fear of judgment. We have that in our hearts that warns us that there's a judgment seat of Christ coming for believers. And we trust that when we appear there to answer for the deeds done in the body, as we read this morning, that we will receive from the Lord Jesus, well done, thou good and faithful servant. But as far as final, consummate, ultimate judgment is concerned and separation from God for all eternity, this has been wiped away in the blood of Jesus Christ. For sins are forgiven. And you cannot be condemned twice. If only, if I could just get that into your hearts this morning, that uh, Christ did not just suffer for your sins, as terrible as that was. He died. His suffering would not have been sufficient. His death was the need. The wages of sin is death. And no matter how terrible that sin might be, and amongst in this congregation this morning, I would venture that we cover every gamut of sin in all of its enormity. Oh, I don't know whether you've ever murdered, but you've hated, and Jesus says, he that hateth his brother is a murderer. I don't know whether you've ever committed adultery, but Jesus says, he that lusteth after a woman is an adulterer already in his own heart. And all he is saying to us is, I'm pointing out to you that you have a nature that is capable of doing any of these things, and therefore the judgment is death. You are not convicted for what you do. You are convicted as a sinner for your capacity to sin. And all of us must admit that we have minds and imaginations that only can be known to God and we thank him for it. Aren't you glad you're a secret to him? Aren't you glad that your wife or your husband doesn't know every thought that ever went through your mind? Aren't you glad the children don't and aren't the children glad their mothers and fathers don't know everything goes through the mind? 
Only God knows that. Man looks on the outward things. God looks upon the heart. And he sees us in the depths of our depravity. We are depraved. All of us. And this is the message of Scripture. You've all gone aside. You've all become filthy. There's none righteous. No, not one. This is God speaking, not man. Placing us exactly where we should be. And so... Here we face the judgments of God, and his warnings come to us. His warnings are clear. I keep preaching that the Lord is coming soon. You know, we've been studying in Daniel, and uh, I've been thinking of the different things that should convince us that the Lord is coming soon. Certainly Israel's position back in the land should be one of the great convinces that the Lord is coming soon. Because God is going to deal with his own earthly people finally. It will be a consummate judgment. Jesus speaks of it in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. And he speaks of his people Israel and the time of great tribulation. And that unless those days should be shortened, why little flesh should live on the face of the earth. But he said, for the sake of the elect, he's speaking here of Israel, for the sake of the elect, I will shorten those days. These are my earthly people. Salvation is of the Jews, Paul said. There is no salvation without the Jewish Old Testament. It points to the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. John, the last John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, points to Jesus. And he looks at him and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so we see Israel as the nation whom God has kept his eye on. He says, Thou art the apple of my eye. And all down through the ages, he's watched their disobedience and has kept saying to them, I am going to bring you back into your land someday in unbelief. And when I bring you back there, then judgments are going to begin. And we already see the signs of coming judgment upon Israel right now. We see all the, the heinous powers of war all beginning to center the gaze upon that little place, Israel and Egypt. And so we see all the signs that God spoke of, that in the last days he would deal with them as a nation. And so we see that. We are conscious of that. In prophetic utterances, there, are always, there is always a refrain, if I can say this, a constant going back. In other words, we come along in prophetic utterances if we were to take Daniel and Revelation. Daniel and Revelation are very clear, the two great prophetic works of the Bible. Uh, very few preachers want to tackle it. The modernist church would throw it out. Uh, certainly, you would hear very few messages concerning either Daniel or Revelation. The only thing you might hear about Daniel would be the uh, fiery furnace or something of that character. But uh, you wouldn't hear anything much beyond those things, you see. It would be 
very carefully laid aside. Most preachers you speak to would say, oh, I wouldn't touch that book of Revelation with a ten-foot pole. I don't know what it has to say. Even though in the first chapter it says, whosoever readeth this book shall be blessed. The reading is very clear. But there is a continual refrain in both Daniel and in Revelation. In other words, we come to a certain point and Daniel will speak about all the different prophetic utterances he has on his heart through the dreams that he has received concerning Nebuchadnezzar and then concerning the four beasts. And he shows that they are empires, beginning with Babylon, and then the Medo-Persian Empire, then the Grecian Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. And these are the only empires that have existed since the days of Daniel. The last 2,500 years are covered by these four empires. That's all. Great empires. Empires that nearly covered the earth, you see. And he deals with these very explicitly. But he continually goes back. He'll start with a, with a certain portion and he will go all the way up to the coming of the Son of Man. And then he will return and say, Lord, sort of at the same time this was happening. So when you get to the book of Revelation, you will find that you will go quickly up in one chapter to the return of Jesus and then the next chapter will say, and at this time. So that you go back and then you go up again, you see. So that there's a continual refrain, a continually going back, going back, going back, and then going forward again. So that it would be like Genesis, for instance. You know, some people look at Adam. And in Genesis, we see the first four chapters. And it covers the, the creation, Adam, Eve, Cain and Abel. And we suddenly think that's about all that concerns Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel, and finally they had another child, Seth, and that's it, you see. But when you get up to the fifth chapter, you begin, you see, it starts all over again. It says, and these are the beginnings of the generations of Adam. You see, God's going to go back. And he says, and Adam and Eve had a host of children. You see? You get an idea that it's only Cain and Abel and Seth. But you find out that you're going to go back again, and you're going to see that he had, they had many, many children. So that there is a going back. We go up to a certain point, and then we go back, and we begin again. Now this happens, if you would turn with me, over in Revelation. Turn with me to the 11th, the 13th chapter. I think if we would remember that the scriptures in Daniel were clear that I read to you over the past few weeks, that both the Old and the New Testament speak of the last days. Uh, in Daniel 10:14, it says, Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall thee in the latter days. It's concerning Israel. In Daniel 12, 4, it says, Thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased. Has knowledge ever increased at such a pace as you see knowledge increasing today? Why, in the age we're living in, I believe I read 90% of all or 95% of all the world's great scientists 
are alive now since the beginning. The great scientists. The world is, is filled with knowledge and is such a, a running to and fro. The world is such a little place. Consummate judgment of God could never come until the world became small. The world had to be judged at one time. It's been impossible until this present age for just such judgments to fall on a world that had knowledge of itself and its existence. Prior to the age we live in, who knew about this country? There are still possibly some tribes somewhere that may not have heard the word of God, although it seems as though the word has gone out to nearly every place. But it hasn't been until now that the world is within what? Every spot on earth, I believe now, is within six to eight hours of any other spot on earth by transportation. And the new planes that the French and the Russians have built. So that the world is a small unit now, and judgments can fall in tremendous power, and knowledgeably so, all around the earth. If there's an earthquake anywhere in the world, we know it immediately. Seismograph, immediate, just like that. We know what's happening. They pinpoint it. They say it happened 10 miles off the coast of so-and-so. And they're up here in Washington or someplace. Everything, knowledge has increased so tremendously, you see. Amazingly so. And the running to and fro, it says here, wisdom shall increase and, and knowledge shall increase and men shall run to and fro and all over the world. Flash like that, you know. Get anywhere. Whoever thought we'd be traveling up to the moon? We're on our way to Mars, aren't we now, with one of our things? It takes up till November to get there, I think. But imagine what's happened in the age since you were born. Now, I don't mean some of you younger ones, but let's say since I was born. Can you imagine this? Since I was born, I, and I'm saying this and I'm not telling you my age, but I remember the horse trolley cars. Now, even when I say that, some of your kids look, what is he talking about? I mean trolley cars drawn by horses. When I was a boy and lived in Brooklyn, I remember the steam trains on the elevator. Running down Gravesend Avenue to Coney Island. This is just in my lifetime. And now I could step into a plane and be in Russia. I was going to say, in less time than it used to take you. I can tell you this. When I used to come to see my uncle, when I was a little teeny fellow who lived in Franklin Square from Brooklyn, I want to tell you that was some trip. The first funerals I went to were horse and carriage funerals. I remember burying my uncle. Horse and carriage funeral. All the way from Brooklyn way out to St. John's Catholic Seminary, cemetery, seminary, cemetery. 
But what I'm trying to impress you is wisdom is increased. Men are running to and fro. God says that in Daniel. He says in those last days, he said, realize this. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall be increased in the time of the end. That's Daniel 12, 4. So these are the days of the end. There can be no doubt about this, can there? All you've got to look is look at the pace of things. Things are going so fast. It, it, it really crushes you to think of it. it uh, and, and the problems that we face are, are so vast, so far beyond anything that we can possibly comprehend. For instance, I read my wife an article this morning which I'd cut out of the paper. It took 2,000 years for the first billion people to get on the earth. 2,000 years for the first billion. It took 35 years for the second billion people to get on the earth. I'm not sure whether that second one is right. No, the third billion. The third billion took 35 years to get upon the face of the earth. The fourth billion will take 15 years. The fifth billion will take five years. And as the head scientist of Rockefeller Institute said, if this world were to go on into the 21st and 22nd century, there will be one square foot of earth for everybody to stand on, despite our use of birth control, etc. Now, if you didn't need anything else, that ought to tell you the Lord's coming soon. One square foot of earth. There will be one billion people in Russia in 1995. There will be one billion people in China in 1985. We will just be a little teeny portion. 300 million, 325 million people in the same time. So that everything, the, the, the increase, that the famines that are already contemplated, of which Jesus spoke in Matthew 24, and there will be famines, he said, and there will be pestilences, does it not amaze you that all of the things that we see at the present time, all of the different kind of insecticides and all of these things that we talk about, and now we're talking about we're using too much of, that with all of this insecticides, all these things, the world is still having tremendous problems. And the last locust plague was the greatest locust plague they have ever had with all that we know. So, beloved, there is famine coming. As the heads of the many bureaus in this country say, by 1975, famine will rage through the earth. 75 isn't long away, is it? Do you know what famine does to people? Famine drives them to kill others. And like the hordes of Genghis Khan, to sweep down and pillage and take everything they can. Everything we see points to the coming of Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 13 here, it talks to us 
about the coming great power, the one of whom Daniel spoke when he spoke of the fourth beast, the Roman Empire. And here John speaks in Revelation about this restoral, this revival of this great Roman Empire that is to come before the final judgment. It is the Antichrist who's going to come, and he's going to be needed, if I can put it this way. He's going to be needed by the world because he is coming Antichrist. He will be the devil's personification, practically. He will be part of a terrible trinity. He will come into the world and he will make all kinds of promises to a world. You'll remember in Daniel 9, 27, the first thing he does is make a covenant with Israel. Smart. Make a covenant with Israel of peace. And this is the beginning then of the 70th week of Daniel, a seven-year period in which great judgments are going to fall upon the earth, but before which the church shall have been called out to meet the Lord in the clouds in the air. For Thessalonians says that until he which restrains is taken out of the way, he will not be revealed. But when we are taken out, then he is going to be revealed. The Antichrist the first beast who arose in Revelation 13 out of the sea. Now, in Daniel 7, it tells us, as we read there, he talks of the four beasts, the four kingdoms. In the 24th verse of Daniel 7, he says, and these beasts were kingdoms. It is a kingdom and as a man associated with it. If we talk of the Alexandrian age, we're talking of Alexander, the great conqueror, Greece, and the age in which he lived. We cannot separate a man from an empire. They've always been created by a man, a powerful man. And in the case here now, in Revelation 13, we see this great power coming forth. The first beast rising out of the sea. And all God is saying here in this figurative language of rising from the sea is saying, this one is coming from the mass of humanity. The sea always represents the mass of humanity. The sea and the waves roaring, God speaks of in other places. Talking of humanity. And this first beast will rise out of humanity. He will not be a Jew. He will come undoubtedly from that area of the Roman Empire. People have tried to make him Nero. Theologians have tried to make him Judas Iscariot. Teachers have tried to make him Mussolini. Teachers tried to make him Hitler. They always tried to make him something he was not. They tried to say it would be Nero raised from the dead. 
what I tried to say, it would be Judas Iscariot raised from the dead, that he would be the Antichrist. But, beloved, the Scripture is clear. It's going to be a revived Roman Empire, and this man, he will be a man. And at the end of the chapter, it says, here is the number of the man, 666. Understand what this means. And all God is saying, remember, the number of perfection is seven. In six days, God made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day, he rested and said, see, it is good. Seven is the number of ultimate perfection. And he said, this man's number is 666. He is just below the divine perfections. As a man, he will come and he will offer peace and he will make a covenant with Israel and there will be be peace upon the earth for three and a half years, half of the 70th week of Daniel. And he will sit as a king and as a ruler. Let me read to you. And I stood upon the sand of the sea. Now, may I say this in the Greek here, the meaning is he stood upon the sand of the sea. This is not Jesus Christ. This is the devil. And he stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and upon his horns ten crowns. When you go home, read Daniel 7 and put the two of them together. You'll see how he talks about the beast being an empire. This beast rises out of the sea. He rises out of the mass of humanity. All of the human misery waiting for a benefactor, waiting for someone to rise in great power waiting for someone who will offer them peace. And I want to tell you, any man who comes and makes a peace covenant with Israel, the world will flock around. Because right now, the whole world is trembling looking at Israel. Don't forget it. Every general in our armies, every man who's been brilliant in international affairs says that if the Third World War begins, it will begin in where? Israel. And so this man rises and his peace covenant of Daniel 9, 26 and 27 is made and he makes it with Israel and Israel dwells in peace in the land. First time, imagine, three and a half years, he keeps that covenant of peace with him. He rises out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon those horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the names of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw, this is amazing, was like a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat 
and great authority. Notice who gave him his power. Satan and his seat and his authority. May I ask you a question? Who does Jesus say is the God of this world? Who gives power to this leader? Satan. Do you know in these United States right now, I read this week, that the cult of Satan is increasing the fastest of any cult in the nation. The cult of Satan, satanic worship, predominantly in California, but it's spreading out. It's spreading. You hear of witches, Maybe you've seen some of the articles in Life magazine. We hear of nudity in the world today. All right, satanic cults are filled with this kind of thing. The worship of Satan and the dragon gave him his power. Notice that. And notice what it says. He was like a leopard and his feet was a bear and his mouth as a lion and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. If you go to Daniel, you find that those three there, the bear, the leopard, and the lion are the characteristics of the first three kingdoms of Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And so this last power has all the power of every empire that's ever existed plus the power of Satan. Can you imagine it? The power of Babylon, the power of an Alexander, who at 29 put the whole world under his feet. The vastness of this, the tremendousness of the picture God is putting before us. And to know that you and I who sit here today can know this as inviolable truth and guide ourselves and direct ourselves by what we know from God's Word because your salvation and the blood of Jesus is no surer than the fact that this one will come because the same Word and the same disciple wrote of your salvation and the book of Revelation. You have no John 3.16 that you can believe in unless you believe in the book of the Revelation because John 3.16 is written by the same man. John. And so we see this tremendous power. It's amazing, isn't it, how Daniel and Revelation fit so well together. Daniel shows the three great kingdoms Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. And then he says, and this one shall have all the attributes of all of them. Plus, he will receive his authority from Satan and his great power. His authority, his seat. He will accomplish great things. And then another thing, uh, oh, if I, I wish I had, oh, right now, you know, I wish I just had hours to go on here because... 
the, the, the tremendous things that are happening. I think that some of the expositors have lost some of the tremendous power that here is manifested in what's going to happen. It, Satan, it, through this beast, through this antichrist, that's what he is, he's antichrist. John says in his epistle, antichrist shall come. And this is antichrist. Only John mentions antichrist, you see, as coming in his epistle. But here he speaks of him in how he's going to come. He'll come out of the mass of humanity and he will be empowered by the dragon himself. And he will make a covenant with Israel of three and a half years for peace. Now, Daniel 9, 26 and 27, you can read it. It says there, he shall make a covenant for one week. A week is seven years, and in the middle of the week, he will break the covenant, and the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Jesus says, shall take place. What is that abomination of desolation? The Antichrist is going to place himself in the temple to be worshipped as God in Jerusalem. And the image will be made, and the image will not live. The word live is used in the scripture, but it says the image will breathe because Satan cannot create life. Couldn't help but make me think when I read that, you know, that the image will breathe. And I was thinking of Christmas time and some of those Santa Clauses I see on the outside of stores. He's laughing, you know, jolly, and his stomach is going in and out and he's breathing. And I couldn't help but think they'll have an image in the temple down there and the image will breathe and people will be amazed at it because through some great power it says he will breathe and speak. And all the earth shall see him. And then I began to realize here we're living in an age where we have satellites up there so that if something happens in London we can see the whole thing and his image will be transferred around the whole earth and all the earth will see him on television on a screen and have to bow down to him because unless they had the mark of the beast in their hands, they can neither buy nor sell. And I want to tell you, in a day of famine, it's going to be very important to get a morsel of food into you. And in Revelation, it tells us that for a penny, you'll get a measure of wheat. And a measure of wheat for a penny, and a penny in the, is a large amount of money in those days. A measure of wheat is sufficient for one little meal of a few calories, and you can watch your children starve to death. And if you're fortunate, you might get, it says, three measures of barley, which is enough for three meals that would never nourish your body or give you any growth. That's what it will be if you don't worship the beast in that day. What a fearful moment. The dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. I would remind you that in Daniel it says, and the beast was four kingdoms. The four beasts were four kingdoms. It's an amazing thing is going to happen. Satan cannot raise a man from the dead. There is a great gulf fixed, Jesus says, between those who are lost and those who are saved. He says, no one can penetrate it. You can't go down and take up a soul out of Hades and clothe it with a body again. Only Jesus is the power of resurrection. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
He that believeth on me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth on me shall never die. Only Christ has the resurrection power. He says in the day of resurrection, some I shall raise to the resurrection of life, and some I shall raise to the resurrection of what? Damnation. No one has the power to raise a man from the dead. This is a kingdom. It's a revived kingdom. It was wounded. Rome was wounded. Rome was laid aside. The other three kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, never came back. That was it. Rome is going to be different. Remember in, in Daniel where it says, and this kingdom shall come forth and shall trod the whole earth under its foot. And so the kingdom that is to come forth, the wound shall be healed unto death. They thought Rome was dead, but Rome is coming back. And the great, great body of this Roman Empire shall be led by the Antichrist. And there shall be ten kingdoms, it says. Ten kingdoms. And as I said to you, we can see it already in its formation in the common market. Or oh, that we would recognize this. Listen. There's indeed an eruption of significant change in the international scene. The entry of Britain into the common market has great and dramatic words for us. With Britain in the common market, the last crucial barrier will have been removed to the political and economic unification of Western Europe into an empire. You'd think I was reading the scriptures, wouldn't you? Listen. The end of the fragmentation of these highly productive nations signals the emergence of a most powerful new force on the whole world scene, lending new urgency to a reappraisal of all our international relationships. Why, who would have thought this would come to pass? Eh? You don't think you're living in the last days? Listen, I may die before he comes. I don't know. At my age, you never know. With the kind of a heart I got, you never know. But there are some here who won't taste death, I think, until Christ comes. May I say that, young folks? Listen, get a vision. The carnal mind cannot see the things of God. They are spiritually discerned. Don't let the devil delude you. Remember what Christ said, and Satan will come and will delude many that they should believe a lie. They won't listen to a preacher. They wouldn't listen to Noah, and people sit with their ears clogged. He says, having ears you hear not, having eyes you see not. And he's talking to Christians. There are some of you here who will not taste death, possibly, until Christ comes. It could well be. It could be today. The precipitous rise is in the hands of the dragon, the Satan, that one, that evil one, that Jesus says is a great deceiver and the great liar. And he will come forth, he says, in his own name, and him you're going to receive. You wouldn't receive me, he said. I was the Prince of Peace. 
I was the God of this world. I made it. I formed it. I was the one of which it was said, unto you is given, a child is born and a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his word shall, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father and the Prince of Peace. But you turned me down and you slew me. And out of the slaying on the cross, in my love, the Father redeemed your souls. He could have cast you out and cast this earth as a satellite, as a star, into oblivion. You weren't worth any more than that. Why he didn't do it, only his grace can understand that. But God, in his mighty grace, has made it possible through that cross of Calvary for you and for me to come. And Satan's great conflict goes on and on and on. And John says in Revelation, Woe unto the inhabitants of earth! Woe unto the inhabitants of earth! For the wrath of the Father has come. Don't treat it lightly, I plead with you. Christ is coming. I haven't touched the surface. There's hours here. I've just talked about the first sheet of ten sheets I wrote. But a mighty thing. Three and a half years of peace he's going to give to Israel. And then, beloved, the great Russian hordes at that time, seeing Israel dwell in peace, at the end of the three and a half years, not at the end of the tribulation, the Russian war is not going to be Armageddon. That's going to be different. There's going to be an atomic holocaust. It's coming. But I just pray that we will escape it. I don't say the United States may not be attacked. It may be attacked before Christ comes. I don't know. It's not spoken of in Scripture. I can't say. But I can say this, that that Russian holocaust that is to come is because Russia will get the ideas with her confederates of the north that if they could descend upon Israel now that Israel is at peace and as Ezekiel 30 says, has no walls, is at perfect peace and that's the only time in Israel's history since it came back as a nation that it will be at peace. It's not at peace now. But during that three and a half period, year period when the Antichrist makes peace, Russia will decide that they will take the chance. They've heard about this man who performs great miracles and the false prophet with him, but they'll take the chance. Let's descend upon Israel. Let's descend upon it because it has the riches of the world. There's a trillion dollars in the Dead Sea. There's the billions of dollars in oil, the black gold. Let's descend upon it. And so Russia will come and come down in its great hordes and descend upon little Israel. Two million people over there and 13 million people throughout the world. But you don't need anything when you have the power of God with you. And so here's the Antichrist. He has his covenant of peace with them. And Russia comes to descend upon them. And what happens? Does the Antichrist defeat them? No. God does. And it's not the war in Revelation 19. God brings his judgment down upon Russia in hail and fire 
and their bodies fall down the mountains of Israel, and he directs them to take seven months to bury the dead. You don't hear about any burial of the dead in Armageddon at all. That's the nations of the world. All the world is fighting God there. This is Russia. And what do the people of the world say? The Antichrist has not come up into his full power yet this last three and a half years of great tribulation. What does the world say? They see Russia falling on the mountains of Israel and dead. And do they attribute it to God? Why, of course not. They attribute it to the beast and the false prophet because he's been doing all the miracles. And they say, look what happened. Now let's all worship him. And Daniel says, in the midst of the week, the abomination of desolation shall occur and the Antichrist shall set himself up as God in the temple and all the world shall then worship him. Now that puts things logically, you see. You can see Russia in his tremendous power, you see. Somewhere, some teaching got out that the battle of Armageddon was when Russia descended upon Israel. I don't know where they ever got that. The battle of Armageddon in Revelation 19 is between the nations of the world when through the frog, demon frogs of Revelation 16, they go out and deceive all the kings of all the earth and they all follow. Who do they follow? Antichrist. And they worship him. And he gathers them all together. He says, okay, now we'll go to battle against God. Now we'll battle God. We've won everything. Man, what a theme. Oh, gee. Tell you, my heart may be weary, but uh, what a theme. What a theme. To think how God has it all planned out. Nothing can change it. Isn't it wonderful to know the Word of God is history written before time? You ever think about that? Huh? His story right? History. His story. It's history written before time. All the histories of the earth, and I'm going to stop with it, all the histories of the earth, as I've said before, are absolute lies. There's not an honest history book in the world. Hate to tell you, collegians and kids, there's no honest history books. Every man who ever wrote it, wrote it according to the taint of his national origins. And if it was a German, he said the Germans were right in the World War. And if he was an American, God mid us. And if he was Japanese, it will be their God, Chinese, their God. You can't read an honest history book because no man is honest. And he can't be because he is tainted by the fact that he's either an American or a German or an Englishman or a Frenchman. Read the French histories on us. Read the German histories on us. Read our history on the Germans. Listen to the Indians about us and us about the Indians. 
Well, like cop and robber stuff, you know, and that Indians and cowboys, we'd better forget. It's all figments of the imagination. The only truth is what? God's Word. Ultimate, final, and complete. Well, so much. We'll go on next time. Let us pray. Father, we thank Thee for Thy blessed Word. Bless it to our hearts. What tremendous themes only understandable to the spiritual mind. Lord, the people who sit here and, and just listen, but don't take it into the heart. Oh, Jesus, I know you love them so much. God, don't let them go out of this place without you. That faith in Christ that saves the soul. Lord, thy word is so wonderful. It speaks of your love. That is its primary objective. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believed on him should not perish but have everlasting life. He that hath the son hath life and shall not come into condemnation and shall not see the wrath which is to come. O Lord, upon this people descend in power. Father, I don't know how much time I have left. I don't really care. But all I plead is this, that you'll give minds of understanding. We remember you talk in Ephesians of having the eyes of our understanding opened. God, open it. Help young people to see. That's why I believe so many young people are going into the Lord's work. That's why I believe right now throughout this country there is in many young hearts a revival of the thoughts on the second coming of Christ. Now, Father, we pray that upon this church the Holy Spirit may fall. Lord, as the Word is taught, we're so thankful, Paul says, this is not old wives' fables. Don't let the world fool you. Don't let the devil delude you. This is God's Word. It's history written before time. Truer than any history that any man on earth has ever written is the Word of God. For Jesus says, I am the truth. Oh, God, touch hearts. May no one leave without Jesus. Please, Lord, I plead with you. Paul said that, I beseech you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God by the blood of his cross. Reconcile souls this morning. We pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.